We're in our main message series on the life of Jesus going through all four of the Gospels in chronological order because we want to know and see for ourselves what Jesus taught, what he did, what he said. We don't want to hear about it from someone else. We want to see it in his word for ourselves. Last week, we saw Jesus deal with a woman caught, exposed in adultery. And we saw Jesus respond with incredible grace and truth because that's just who he is. He is grace and truth personified. This week we're going to see Jesus make his second I am statement. The gospel of John is famed for its seven I am statements by Jesus. My prayer as always is that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the one thing that you most need to hear today. So you be open to that when the Holy Spirit lights that one thing up for you, you write it down and you latch onto that today. So let's set the scene. Jesus is still in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, along with almost every able-bodied Jewish male and many families in the country. You remember that two weeks ago in our study in John 7, Jesus used one of the water rituals at the Feast of Tabernacles to reveal himself as the living water. Here Jesus is going to allude to another of the rituals to reveal something else about who he is. Because the Feast of Tabernacles commemorated Israel's wilderness wanderings, the journey they went on for almost 40 years between slavery in Egypt and freedom in what's known as the Promised Land, they would light up the city with torches to remember how God had led them through the wilderness as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And historians tell us that one of the big temple courtyard areas, you'll remember the temple complex was about 35 acres. It was the largest center of worship in the world at that time. In one of the courts, there would be four enormous golden candle stands, candelabras basically, and each would have four massive bowls attached to them. And each bowl would be an enormous oil lamp. And it was so bright that by some accounts it would light up the entire city of Jerusalem. Last week, Jesus showed incredible, incredible grace and truth, as we said, in dealing with this woman caught in adultery. And as we ended last week's study, most of the religious leaders had left, the woman had left, but there was still a crowd there. And so Jesus is left with the crowd, and you can bet your life he had their undivided attention after the incredible way he had dealt with the woman caught in adultery. So perhaps as the candelabras are being packed up, the day after the Feast of Tabernacles has ended right there on the temple complex, Jesus stands up, points to them, or they're right over his shoulder, and he shares this with the crowd in verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, and then underline the rest of this verse, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of Life. This is Jesus' second I am statement in the Gospel of John. I am the light of the world. All the way back in Isaiah 9, I put it on your outlines, the scriptures prophesied about this moment when Isaiah said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Biggest principle when it comes to understanding the Bible and interpreting the Bible. We don't sit down and ask, What could this mean? Our goal is to determine what did the Lord mean when he put this in the Bible. So we don't go, oh, the light of the world. That means Jesus is here to bring us happiness from the darkness of sadness. We don't ask what could it mean. We ask what 
does it mean? What does Jesus mean when he says that he's the light of the world? So think about this. The light that led Israel in the wilderness was the very presence of God, the visible presence of God taking the form of a cloud or a pillar of fire. It was visible to them because they needed to be able to follow it in order to know where to go. Without it, they would be lost, just aimlessly wandering. So here is Jesus, and he's not connecting himself to light in the abstract sense. He's not saying, I'm light, which is good, here to deal with darkness, which is bad. That's not what he's saying. He's alluding to a very specific light, the light that was celebrated at the Feast of Tabernacles, the presence of God, which led Israel in the wilderness. So Jesus is saying he is God, the very presence of God, God incarnate, and has come so that people may follow him to be led through the wilderness to where they need to go. So write this down. Jesus is claiming to be the same light that led Israel as a pillar of fire in the wilderness. Jesus is claiming to be the same light that led Israel as a pillar of fire in the wilderness. It's a profound claim where Jesus is once again revealing that everything in the Old Testament is designed to lead and point to him. Every feast that Israel celebrates is designed to point to him. And don't miss this. Jesus didn't say, I am the light of Israel. He didn't say, I am the light of the Jews. What did he say? He said, I'm the light of the world, the world. Even in that statement, Jesus is declaring, what I've come to do is for everyone. It's for the whole world, not just the Jews. We notice Jesus says, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Make a note of this and we'll unpack it. In Jesus's mind, those who believe in him follow him. In Jesus's mind, those who believe in him follow him. And, and this is a sobering thought when you realize this. From Jesus's perspective, there are no half-hearted Christians. From Jesus's perspective, there are no people who are believers but not disciples. From Jesus's perspective, there are no lukewarm Christians. And I think the letter he writes to the last church in Revelation 3 confirms that perspective. In the mind of Jesus, those who believe in him follow him. It's just what they do. The Greek word that's used there for follow has three applications. As a soldier follows his commander, as a slave follows his master, as a student follows his teacher. Soldier, slave, student. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. He's our commander. He's our Lord. He's the one who calls the shots, comes up with the plan, sets the agenda. He's our master. The word of God says we, we belong to him. We were bought at a price. We were paid for with the blood of Jesus. And don't think that he's enslaved us because we already had an owner before Jesus came for us. We belong to Satan. He had every right to us because of our sin till Jesus became our master. And he's our teacher. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to view him that way. So now we'll hear from the open-minded Pharisees. Verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. You can't count yourself as a witness, Jesus. And besides, even if you do, you've only got one witness. The law requires two. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. 
This is what Jesus is saying. Seeing as I'm God and all, my witness counts. I get a special pass. I'm allowed to testify about myself because I'm God. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if, the if should really be when, and yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. So he's saying you're judging with your human fleshly judgment. You're just looking at everything on the surface level. You're not judging righteously. You're not worried about what's right and wrong, what's really going on here. He says, I'm not judging anyone right now. And he just proved that in the way he dealt with the woman caught in adultery. But the day will come when I will judge. That day is coming. And when I do judge, I will judge righteously. And by the way, I do have a second witness. My second witness is my Father in heaven. Jesus is specifically referring to his baptism in the Jordan River when he's baptized by John the Baptist. And many of you will recall the voice of God thunders from heaven as that's taking place is heard by hundreds, if not thousands of people. This is my son in him I'm well pleased. Hundreds or thousands of people heard that voice from heaven. That was the witness of the Father from heaven testifying that Jesus was, in fact, his son, his only begotten son. Verse 17, Jesus keeps talking. It's also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. I'm witness number one, which I can do because I'm God, and my Father in heaven is witness number two. Then they said to him, where is your Father? They're not really asking where his Father is. We need to remember that at this time, there's really nobody outside of Jesus and Mary, because apparently Joseph has passed away by this time, there's nobody at this time who's really buying the Immaculate Conception story. The rumor wasn't like, oh yeah, there's this woman, Mary, living up in Nazareth, and uh, she had a child uh, immaculately. She was made pregnant by the Holy Spirit. There was no guy involved. Nobody believed that. Not a single person, not even the half-brothers and sisters of Jesus believed the story. They didn't go home and go like, oh, Jesus, listen, I've got a soccer game. Can you just bless me before I go? That wasn't his relationship with his siblings. This is not a real question, and it's not a polite question. They're getting very testy and personal, and that's going to reach its climax in verse 41 when we get there. Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury. The treasury was in the court of women at the temple, one of the big patio areas, as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me. You'll seek me physically, not spiritually, and will die in your sin. That's terrifying. You'll look for me. You won't find me because physically I'll be gone. You're going to die in your sin. Why? Because where I go, you cannot come. You cannot come. So pay attention to the coming verses. I put this on your outline to dig into on your own. We don't have time to unpack it today, but verses 22 through 30 are going to lay out four different reasons why these Pharisees, these religious leaders, cannot go to heaven. Four different reasons. I commend you to study that on your own this week and just figure out what are those four things that Jesus says, these are the things that are gonna stop you from getting to heaven. Verse 22, so the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. 
we don't understand what's going on there when we read it at the surface level, but here's what's happening. They're trying to think, where can Jesus go physically that we can't go as well? Where can he be talking about? And so they think, and they think, well, there's only one place that we could never go, and that's Gehenna, sort of the precursor to hell. They're like, there's no way in the world we could end up there. So clearly, Jesus is talking about the one place we could never go, which is Gehenna. And so they believed at this time that if you committed suicide, you would go straight to Gehenna. So their thinking is the only place that we could never go is Gehenna. And so perhaps Jesus is saying that he's going to kill himself and go straight to Gehenna because that's the one place we would never go. By the way, it's not true that if you commit suicide, you immediately go to hell. It's not suicide that sends a person to hell. It's rejecting Jesus as their Lord and Savior that determines a person's course, just so we know that. Verse 23, and he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. In the original language, it means you are from as far down as you can go, in other words, hell, and I'm from as far above as you can go, in other words, heaven. He's just warming up the crowd here. It's hard to remember this, but, but Jesus is not saying this to be argumentative or mean. He's not getting into verbal volleyball with these guys. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, and Jesus was the friend of sinners. He's still trying to be a friend even to these men who are conspiring to kill him. And even to these men, Jesus is being a friend by telling them the truth in the most direct way because they won't take it any other way. And Jesus is reaching the end of his rope with these guys and he's saying, I I can't give you any more parables. I can't give you any more illustrations. I've just got to tell you this like it is. You're on track to die in your sins and go to hell. That's the path that you're on. There is nothing kinder that Jesus could have said to them at that time because wounds from a friend are faithful. A friend will tell you something that hurts if it's true, even though they know it'll be hard to hear. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's not descending into an argument or an insult match. That's not what's going on. He keeps going, you are of this world and I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. That's why I said to you, you'll die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That word he in your Bible should be italicized. Do you all see that? It's leaning to the right on a little bit. That means that it's not in the original Greek. It means that one of the Bible translators added that because they thought it needed to be there to make the sentence make sense but they were wrong. It doesn't need to be added. The sentence should mean exactly what it says. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So maybe you want to cross out that word he, and we're going to unpack this. When Jesus uses the name I am, he is using the name of God. They don't quite realize it because you can read that sentence two different ways still. But Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh. Later on, that'll become very clear. They'll get it, and they won't receive it well. I am first shows up as the name of God in Exodus 3 when Moses encounters the presence of God in the burning bush, and God gives him the mission of going back to Egypt to free the enslaved nation of Israel. Here's what happens. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So Moses is saying, I'm going to go, okay, going to tell the people that I'm here, sent by you to follow them, and they're going to say, who sent you? He said, what what do I tell them? 
And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So when Jesus begins claiming that he is I am, he is claiming that he is God, the same God who spoke to Moses through the burning bush, the same light of the world who led the children of Israel out of Egypt as a pillar of fire by night. So write this down. When Jesus claims to be I am, and he's going to do it in verses 24, 28, and 58, he's claiming to be God. He is claiming to be God. He's hinting at that now, but they're not really sure if he means it. Keep paying attention as the conversation unfolds. Jesus says, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The idea of universalism, the idea that there are many different paths you can take to get to God, I'm just going to be honest, is so intellectually and philosophically lazy and pathetic, I'm shocked that universalism is even a thing because it doesn't make a lick of sense because Jesus is not compatible with universalism because in his own words, Jesus has just said, guys, the problem is sin. The problem is sin. You're going to go to hell because of your sin and the only way to deal with sin is by believing in me. Jesus is completely incompatible with universalism. And while I'm at it, I'll just mention as well, most other monotheistic faiths are completely incompatible with universalism as well. Go ask a Muslim if Islam is compatible with universalism. They believe Allah is God and Muhammad is his prophet. There's no other. So the idea of universalism is so stupid because you're saying, no, there's many paths to God, but most of those paths say that they are the only way to God. It, it, it's just lazy, and the only people, in my opinion, who really believe that are people who haven't bothered to do a lick of research into anything, and so they're just saying, well, I just believe everything works out in the end. That's really code for, I don't think this is an urgent or important issue. I'm just lazy, and I just hope it'll all sort of work out in the end. So, is Jesus God? This is the question that divides everything that's Christian from everything that is not. Is Jesus God? JWs don't believe it. Mormons don't believe it. Even universalists don't believe it. Is Jesus God? Now, there are many different denominations, many interpretations, and we disagree on many different things. But the thing that unites all of Christianity is the belief that Jesus is God. Now, we're right about all those other little things, but no, not really. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I always imagine when we get to heaven, is Jesus going to bring like all the pastors and theological hardliners up and he's going to play like, the most epic game show in the world and it'll be like category one, Calvinism, true or false? Let's find out. Drum roll, please. And, you know, there'll be people who've dedicated their whole lives to writing books this thick about the subject and... I know what'll happen. Jesus will say it's false and I'll be on the right side. So I know exactly how that's all gonna, all gonna play out. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> but then there'll be ones where you'll be like, oh, I was so wrong on that, man. So then they said to him, who are you? They're being willfully ignorant as Jesus is about to point out. And we know that because they've already tried to kill him because of who he claims to be. The issue is not that they don't know who he is. The issue is that they don't want to accept who he is. And Jesus said to them, who am I? Just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. 
I am the same guy I've been telling you I am since the beginning of my ministry, since we began our conversations. Verse 26, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. So here's what Jesus is thinking. Because, because I've been telling you, because I've been revealing to you who I am over and over again, you're going to be judged harshly because you've received incredible revelation. The Son of God has stood in front of you and explained to you who he is, how he is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament, and that still wasn't good enough for you. So you guys, you're gonna be judged harshly one day because you were given a lot of revelation and you rejected all of it. Not only that, but by claiming that he was going to judge them one day, Jesus was claiming to be God. They believed that the only true judge who would ever judge them would be God. So write this down. The religious leaders believed that they could only be judged by God. Only be judged by God. Jesus keeps talking. But he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. I'm not going to judge the world right now because the Father's not asking me to do that right now. And I only do what the Father tells me to do. This is straight up self-discipline from Jesus. He's biting his tongue and he has to be thinking, oh, there is so much I could say. But he submitted to what the Father is asking him to do moment to moment. And he says, there's a lot I could say, but fortunately for you, that's not what the Father wants me to do right now. So I'm gonna hold my tongue. Verse 27, they did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up, so when you crucify the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And again, that He is italicized. You might want to cross it out because He's saying, when you lift me up, when you crucify me, then you will know that I am. Here He's speaking prophetically about the coming time when He's going to be crucified on the cross. And he, He's telling the religious leaders, listen, when you see me murdered on the cross, when the sky darkens tonight in the middle of the day, when the earth shakes, when graves open and dead people come out alive and whole, when the curtain that is in the temple that separates you from the holy of holies is torn in two, then you will know, I am, I am. And as you read through the book of Acts, one of the neatest things is that you'll read that in fact many priests did come to believe in Jesus after the death and resurrection. He keeps talking and he says, and that nothing I do is of myself, but as the Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Make a note of this. In saying, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, Jesus is claiming that he never sins. He's saying, I only do. Everything I do is what the Father in heaven tells me to do, and I do nothing else. He's saying, I never sin. And you know what's interesting is when he says this, nobody objects. Nobody pipes up and says, I heard that phone conversation you had with your internet company. You totally lost it on that guy. You sin. Nobody can bring up anything. He says, I never sin, and nobody says, oh, come on, stop it. They couldn't raise one example. The only quote-unquote sin that they ever caught Jesus in was him claiming to be God, which is not a sin if you are God. Jesus only ever did what the Father told him, and he only ever said what the Father told him to say. It's a staggering statement. You think about this. Jesus never ended a single day with a regret, ever. Doesn't mean he didn't have difficult days, but he never went home at night, laid his head, and thought, man, I really screwed up that conversation. 
should have been kinder, should have been more this or that. And that floors me because his secret is that he's so connected to the Father, so submitted to the Father, moment to moment, he has a life with no regrets. We can't attain perfection in this life, but, but from this we can take the lesson. Listen, the more we rely on Jesus, the more we look to him moment to moment throughout the day, the less and less regrets we're going to have at the end of each day, the less regrets we're going to have at the end of our lives. Look to Jesus, rely on Jesus. It's the key to living a life without regrets. Verse 30, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. So thankfully among this crowd, there are many people who are willing to listen and respond to what Jesus is saying. So they link what he's been saying to what he's been doing. They've seen the miracles, now they hear what he's saying and they're saying what he does, the way he lives his life and what he's saying, these things all add up. There's harmony between the life he lives and the things he teaches, it adds up, he's the truth. And it's interesting to me, it says many believed when they heard the words of Jesus. Many believed when they heard the words of Jesus. They had seen him do the miracles, but it was the words of Jesus that really changed their hearts. So get this, this is now so important. These people have just believed in Jesus. They've believed in Jesus. They've had their spiritual eyes open. They see, yeah, you're God, you're our savior, you're the Messiah. So now Jesus is going to tell them something important. Verse 31, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, Lord, we believe, now what? We believe in you. What's next after we believe in you? What does it mean to be your disciple? How do we follow you? He gives one instruction, one. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. If you abide in my word, if you stay in my word, if you stick to my word, if you live in my word, if you live out my word, you're my disciples indeed. Why does he give that one instruction? Well, because if you're in the word, it's gonna lead you to everything else. There might be people who would say, the most important thing you need to do is good works in your community. Well, here's the thing, if you're in the word of God, you're gonna find out that good works naturally flow out of your life when you love Jesus. You begin to get his heart for other people, and that stuff happens naturally. But Jesus says, if you do one thing, if you abide in my word, everything else will take care of itself. You'll get to everything else in due time. But through his word, you're gonna discover his spirit, you're going to discover everything you need for the Christian life. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So write this down. Jesus drills down discipleship into one step, abiding in his word, abiding in his word. Just what we're doing right now, in fact, right now, abiding in his word. The word disciple means disciplined one. So if you really wanna know Jesus, there's gonna have to be an element of discipline in your walk with him. Don't freak out when you hear that. Whenever we hear that about God, we're like, oh my gosh, what does that mean? What does that mean? We understand that to do anything in life that matters, to get in good physical condition, to achieve a degree academically, we all understand that there's discipline involved to accomplish anything in life. To keep your job, you still have to get to your work by a certain time. That's a discipline. We all understand this idea. Jesus is just saying, listen, if you want to be my disciple, there's just some stuff you, you got to do. And I love that he doesn't give a long list. He doesn't say, here you go, because that's what the law was. He says, there's just one thing. Man, love my word. Abide in my word. Be in my word. No seven things, no 12 things, no daily checklist, just that one thing. He says, start there, and you'll be amazed what I'll do in your life. Anybody can do it. 
You can pick up a Bible and read it on your own. If you don't understand it, you can buy a commentary, an amazing commentary for like $40. And I hope that nobody, when they hear the number $40, says, gee, that's a lot of money to have the entire meaning and purpose of life in my existence explained to me. I'm not sure if I can spend that. That's like four months worth of Netflix. It's not a lot of money, I promise. You don't need to be rich. You can go online and get great messages for free that will help explain things to you. And if all you have is a Bible, God will still work through that. And I love that. This is Jesus. He doesn't say, here's what you need to do. You've got to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Here's the kicker, though. You've you got to crawl the last five miles on your hands and knees. That's what you need to do. He just says, man, just be in my word. It's all in there. Just be in my word. When we reach John 14, Jesus is going to say this. It's so profound. I put on your outlines. If you love me, keep my commandments. In other words, Jesus, we love you so much. What can we do for you? And he's, hey, abide in my word. Just live out my word. Just live it out. Obviously, we can't do that if we don't know what his word is. So connect this now. The Great Commission, the mission Jesus gave all of us. Go into all the world, make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The ministry of making disciples, connecting people to Jesus, to God. If what Jesus has said here is true, it is impossible to make disciples apart from his word. Impossible. You can build relationships outside of his word. You can hang out with a bunch of guys and play basketball and try and be a good influence, but you can't make disciples without the word of God. There's no way around it because you can read that in the converse and say, listen, you are not my disciples if you don't abide in my word. So the central part of making disciples has to be the word of God, and this is so important. Also in John 14, Jesus will say, if anyone loves me, He will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Then notice what comes next in our text. One of the most misquoted verses of all time. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Why do I say that is misquoted? Well, one, because you see it used for everything all over the place, horribly out of context, But it's mainly misquoted because Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, who is he referring to? Himself. He's referring to himself. He's saying, if you abide in my word, notice the if. It's a qualifying part of language. It's if. It's the condition. If you abide in my word... You will know me, the truth, and I will make you free. So write this down. The truth is Jesus. The truth is Jesus. So get this. Jesus himself tells us that if you want to know the truth, if you want to know Jesus in a way that will set you free and cause you to live in freedom, you need to do one thing. You need to abide in his word. And people use this verse out of context because they pull out the qualifier. They pull out the qualifier of abiding in his word. If you don't do that, you can't know the truth. You can't perceive truth. You can't understand truth. If you're not in the word of God, you can't see things clearly. People use this verse out of context because they pretend that the truth is referring to anything or anyone other than Jesus. 
This is speaking specifically about Jesus. Taking this even deeper, Jesus said that he is the truth, but when he prayed to his father for his disciples, right before he was crucified, Jesus prayed this, John 17, 17, your word is truth. So which is it? Is it, is it Jesus or the word? Well, the answer, as many of you know, is that Jesus and his word are one and the same thing. The word is Jesus and Jesus is his word. It's all summed up in that mystical first chapter of the Gospel of John. The first verse of the Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. If you know his word, you'll know him. And he is the truth and he'll set you free. It all starts with his word. Verse 33, they, the religious leaders, not the crowd, answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? They're now scoffing and saying, set free from what? We've never even been in bondage. This is exactly like the person who says, saved from what? I'm not a slave to anything. I'm a free man. I do what I want. There's no chains on me. Both are perspectives of ignorance. To these scoffing religious leaders, Jesus could have said, really? Did you forget that the nation of Israel was born in bondage? A family went down, 12 sons, becoming the 12 tribes into Egypt, ended up stuck there for 400 years in slavery. What about the 305 years you were in bondage to seven different nations in the book of Judges? What about the Assyrians who led 10 of the 12 tribes away with hooks in their mouths and marched them across the desert? What about the 70 years you spent in Babylon? What about the Greeks and Antiochus Epiphanes who sacrificed a pig in the temple before destroying Jerusalem? What about the Romans right now? What are you talking about? They're idiots. They're idiots. There's no other way to say it. They're completely blind to the fact that Rome is ruling Israel while they're having this conversation. They were in captivity at that very moment. Sometimes the most gracious thing you can just say is nothing. Sometimes the most gracious thing you can do is just pretend that they didn't just say what they said. And that's what Jesus is going to do. Verse 34, Jesus answered them. He basically says, oh, okay, just listen. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin, and just so you know, the word there is, is implied habitually. Whoever commits sin habitually, who lives in a lifestyle of consistent sin, is a slave of sin. So he says, listen, even if it were true that you'd never been in bondage politically, I'm not actually even talking about that. You're in bondage to sin. And any honest addict who's been addicted to anything will tell you that you always start out thinking you're calling the shots. And then you wake up one day and realize that your addiction is calling the shots and controlling your entire existence. You're just a slave to obey. But it's not just drugs or alcohol. How about greed? How about anger? How about bitterness or unforgiveness or even obsession with self? How, how about lust? You start out thinking you're just having some fun, exercising some freedom, and before you know it, you're a slave because lust is like a fire. The hotter it burns, the more it demands. Satan is so smart at getting us hooked into sin. In fact, one of his favorite strategies is actually protecting us from the consequences of our sin until we're hooked. You could ask Samson about that. He took a vow, a Nazarite vow, and broke almost every part of his vow. He was never supposed to touch a dead body. He did. He was never supposed to touch wine. Well, he went and partied with the enemy and drank wine there. Guess what? When he did those things, nothing happened. 
nothing happened. And he did what we all do. Well, I guess I'm getting away with it. He didn't understand that sin is like a ladder. You're just climbing higher up, getting ready for a longer fall. Do you know when Samson realized that he was a slave to sin? After Delilah had cut his hair, stealing his strength, He'd had his eyes gouged out by his enemies and was doing the work of an ox in chains. That's when he realized, I think I might be a slave to sin, even though I was the strongest man in the world. Most of us have experienced the sin we got lured into with the pitch. Hey, just exercise your freedom. Do what you want. Be free. And before we knew it, we were doing what we didn't want to do because we were now a slave to sin, the exact opposite of freedom. Isn't it ironic how Satan lures you into sin with the promise of freedom and you end up in the exact opposite situation? Jesus keeps talking, verse 35, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. The Bible freely admits in the book of Hebrews, hey, sin is pleasurable for a season. It's pleasurable for a season. The reason that it's not wise to be involved with sin is not because, you know, the truth is it's really not fun. A lot of sin is really fun. Don't tell your kids that sin isn't fun. You're lying to them and they're going to figure that out sooner or later. It can be fun for a season. The reason sin is foolish is because of where it ultimately leads, where the end of the road is. It's like a roller coaster that's a great, great ride. But then at the end, the line just runs out. (laughs) That's what sin is like. We're having an amazing time. Ah! That's what sin is like. It's where it leads that is the whole problem. You think you're comfortable, but Jesus says, listen, you're like a servant in the house. You're looking around you and you're like, hey man, look where I am. This is a pretty nice house. And he says, "Hey, hey, listen, sometimes even... A servant ends up in a nice house. That doesn't mean it's their home. They've got no future in that house. Sooner or later, they're going to end up on the street. The son has a future in that house. Servants may have a present home in the house. They don't have a future home in the house. The master of the home is not going to turn to the servant at some point and say, hey, why don't you just stick around as my kid? That's not going to happen. They're just employees pretending to live the high life. Sooner or later, they're gonna be kicked out on the street. That's what Jesus is saying. You're in bondage to sin. You think everything is great. You're getting away with it. Hey, listen, you're in a temporary situation. You're not gonna like what's at the end of the line. Verse 36, therefore, but here's the good news. If the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. You're gonna be free from the power of sin which dooms us to eternal death. You're gonna be free from the fear of death free to see the truth, to see the world as it is, rather than being deceived by Satan, as the Bible says the whole world is. Free to live a life of meaning and purpose and eternal significance in serving God, rather than spending your life on things that are only going to exist for a short time and are ultimately meaningless. Free to find meaning and fulfillment in knowing your maker and creator and being at peace with him. Free indeed. Free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, so this, this is big. He says, I know you come from Abraham genetically, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. 
They love to play that card. Even though the last time they did, Jesus responded, do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God's able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Jesus' response to them saying, Abraham is our father, is basically, and? And? In Galatians, the Apostle Paul explains that the defining characteristic of Abraham, what makes Abraham Abraham, the father of the faith, is not that he was the first Jew. It's not his ethnicity, it was his faith. Paul explains in Galatians that those who put their faith in the Lord are the real children of Abraham, a point Jesus is about to make. Jesus said to them, underline the rest of the sentence, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Yes, you come from Abraham genetically, but you're not children of Abraham spiritually because you don't believe in me like Abraham did. You're not Abraham's kids in the way that actually matters. Make a note of this. This is a really, really crucial thing to understand about the whole Bible. Genetic, ethnic Israel is the seed of Abraham. Genetic, ethnic Israel is the seed of Abraham. Those who believe in Jesus, the church, are the children of Abraham. Those who believe in Jesus, which we'd call the church, are the children of Abraham. They are two different groups. One is ethnic Israel, while the other is the church. Not understanding these two groups in the Bible will cause a lot of confusion, especially in the area of Bible prophecy. If you don't pick up that Jesus is talking about two different groups, you're gonna get mixed up. So when Paul talks about the church being true Israel, he's speaking spiritually, because believers are the real children of Abraham. They have faith like Abraham had faith. But that doesn't mean God isn't done with ethnic Israel, and it doesn't mean that every reference to Israel in the New Testament is a reference to the church. The church has one destiny, and ethnic Israel has another destiny. If you don't understand that, you'll never make sense of the book of Revelation. It'll be impossible for you to understand it. Right here, Jesus himself explains that they are indeed the seed of Abraham, ethnic Israel, but they're not the children of Abraham. Today, the Jews are Israel genetically, but today the church is Israel spiritually. Two groups, two different future destinies in the Bible. Don't get confused about it. Jesus is explaining that contrary to what the religious leaders believe, the world is not divided along ethnic lines. It's not the Jews and everyone else. Jesus is saying, listen, the world is divided along spiritual lines. There are those who love the Lord and those who don't. That's the division. So Paul unpacks the difference between ethnic and spiritual Israel in greater detail in Romans 4 and 9, if you want to check that out this week. Romans 4 and 9. So pick up on this. They say, Abraham is our father. Jesus says, if Abraham were your father, you'd be men of faith like Abraham was. No, you, you do the deeds of your father, who is clearly not Abraham. So who's he implying their father is? We'll find out in a couple of verses. It says, then they said to him, well, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. So they've just dropped the gloves here. Here's what they've said. We're not bastards. That's what they've just said to Jesus. We're not bastards. We know your history. If a person can't win an argument on the grounds of facts or logic, their only options left are ridicule and name calling. That's what the Pharisees do. They use what's called an ad hominem 
argument. In an ad hominem argument, you don't actually debate the facts of the matter. You attack the person instead of their argument. It still goes on all the time to this day. And that's what they're doing. <laughs> Look, Jesus, we know you were conceived out of wedlock. Heck, everybody knows you were conceived out of wedlock. So you are the last person who should be talking to us about our parental lineage. Your dad is probably a Roman soldier. Your mom's a tramp. That's what they're saying here. We often forget about what's referred to as Jesus' silent years. His silent years are the time before he started his ministry. There's almost 30 years of his life, and all we have is a few details about his birth, and then a quick snapshot of one interaction he has in the temple when he's a preteen. Other than that, it, it, it's silent. There's many myths out there, but, but none of them are really valid. And what we forget is that Jesus was the man of sorrows long before his ministry ever started. The Bible doesn't call him the man of sorrows because he died on the cross. There was a heaviness to his whole life, his whole existence. Just understand this. He grew up in a large family where all of his siblings were half-siblings, half-brothers, half-sisters. Jesus was the one whose father was kind of foggy in the family. Sure, they told the stories, but nobody believed it. It's evident in the Gospels, none of his brothers or sisters really believe he's God. They don't buy the mom's story. They just think this is the best story they could come up with to protect mom's honor. Wish they'd had a better excuse. You think it's easy growing up in a large family, being the only one who's different that way? Having a lineage that nobody buys, nobody believes, that's shrouded in shame? Kids can be wonderful and innocent, but kids can also be unbelievably cruel. And this is a small, conservative, redneck Jewish town 2,000 years ago. A village of maybe five to eight acres in size. Everybody knows. Everybody knows the story. Jesus didn't have an easy childhood. In Psalm 69, there are some elements here that talk about the life Jesus had prophetically. And I just want to read you a few verses from it. It says, I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me. Being my enemies wrongfully, though I've stolen nothing, I still must restore it. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Those who sit in the gate speak against me and I am the song of drunkards. He's literally saying, they'd sing songs about Jesus the bastard as he was growing up. The men who would sit in the gate, the most influential people of the town, would crack jokes about him, talk about him. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. In the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Jesus knows what it's like to be bullied. He knows what it's like to be the victim of scorn and mockery. He knows what it's like to be a social outcast. He knows what it's like to grow up as a social outcast. He knows what it means to be lonely as a child. He knows what it means to be lonely as a teenager. And he knows what it means to be lonely as an adult. He knows, he knows. And he was the man of sorrows long before his ministry began. 
So unsurprisingly, Jesus is not okay with them talking trash about his mom. And so he's going to tell them exactly what the situation really is. And this is his sort of last-ditch effort to get through to these hard-hearted guys. And you're going to hear in his tone that if they don't get this, they're probably never going to get it. So Jesus says, okay, you want, you want to talk about my mom? Let's talk about your dad. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he who sent me. Underline verse 43. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. That's a harsh word. Tell us what you're really thinking, Jesus. But it's still a gracious word, and do you know why? Because it's 100% truthful. But the truth for these men is harsh. Jesus tells them, because you refuse to understand, you're not able to understand. Because you don't want to get it, you can't get it. Remember what we talked about before, that the will of God's not for the curious. You want to know God, then you have to determine that you're willing to follow God if he reveals himself to you. If you're not willing to follow God, God says, well, why would I even bother revealing myself to you? James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. I'm so glad that verse doesn't say God resists the stupid, God resists the foolish. He says he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Everybody can choose to be humble. Verse 45, underline this, this is profound. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. You don't believe me because you know I'm telling you the truth. You don't want to believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? This is Jesus saying, let's play a game. Name a sin. Name one that I've committed. This really points to the kind of life Jesus lived that he could even say this because of course they couldn't. His sinlessness is a claim that nobody else could make. Not even to this day can anybody claim to live a life without sin. He's the only man who could claim this. Well, what about Buddha? Let's talk about Buddha. He left his wife and his newborn baby to pursue enlightenment, leaving them to almost starve to death. His son grew up so angry he never became a Buddhist. Can't talk about Buddha and sinlessness. Who do you want to talk about? Who do you want to talk about? There's nobody. There's nobody who can even make the claim. Muhammad can't make the claim. His own writings, the Quran, the Hadith, incriminate him. He was a sinner as well. There's nobody but Jesus who could ever claim to have lived a sinless life. He says, and if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Guys, you've seen me. You can't even name a sin that I've committed. So you can trust that I'm telling you the truth because you've never heard me tell a lie. And if I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? It's a good argument. And they're, they're absolutely silent at this moment. And because they won't, because they can't answer Jesus, Jesus will answer the question for them. Verse 47, he says, He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you're not of God. You do not hear because you're not of God. Now watch their reaction. Jesus tries to reason with them, but their only comeback is ethnic slurs and mockery. Then the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? 
And even though they're asking the question rhetorically, Jesus will still answer it. Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, and then you want to underline this, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Even as they dishonor him to his face, he's still trying to get them to repent. He's still inviting them to be a part of his kingdom family. What a promise this is from Jesus. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. For those who know Jesus, death is not annihilation or termination. Death is transformation. Because the moment we close our eyes in the final second of our lives, we'll see Jesus. And when we see him, we will be like him. Verse 52, then the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. We know you're out of your mind. Abraham is dead and the prophets. But you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? Are you greater than the prophets who are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus makes this incredible statement. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. It's the offer of salvation. And we've said this before. He who is born once will die twice, but he who is born twice will die once. There's two deaths. There's the physical death, and then there's the spiritual eternal death. When Nicodemus came to Jesus by night in secret and said, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, you need to be born again. You need to become a new creation as a child of God. You need to be saved. And he says, Nicodemus, if you're born this second time, if you're born again spiritually, you're only going to face one death, your physical death. But you're never going to face spiritual death. You're going to live forever with me. Jesus here is speaking about having a spirit that will live forever with him. It's the offer of salvation, but these guys don't get it. They think he's talking about spiritual death. So they're saying, Abraham and the prophets, righteous men, all died. They died, and they were legends. Are you claiming that you're greater than them? That you won't die, and you can save other people from death because you're greater than them? Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It's my Father who honors me, of whom you say... He is your God. If I'm trying to bring honor to myself, it's nothing special. People are always trying to do that. People always want glory. But I've never sought my own glory. I've only sought to glorify my Father. Any glory that I've received, any fame I have, anyone who's worshipped me here is because my Father caused them to do that. I didn't seek that. My Father sent that my way. And when I say my Father, I'm talking about the one that you claim to serve as your God. Verse 55, yet you've not known him but I know him. You don't know the Father, but I know him. And if I say, I do not know him, I shall be a liar, like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Hey, listen, I know you guys want me to back off my stance and chill out and say I'm not really the son of God, but I can't do that because that would be a lie. That would make me a liar, like you. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So let's think this through. When did Abraham see Jesus? There's two possibilities, and I think they both have merit. The first possibility is that Abraham really did, in fact, receive prophetic revelation about Jesus throughout his life. We see it throughout his life that God comes and meets with him and shares things with him, and assumedly there may have been more events than were recorded in Scripture. For example, in Genesis 22, we know God asks Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac. We think it's horrific, but God doesn't allow him to go through with it. 
we now know that Abraham and Isaac are acting out exactly what's going to happen with Jesus, the son of the father, on the hill of Calvary one day. And all the horrific feelings we have about a father having to let his own son die are supposed to help us understand what the father went through in letting his son, Jesus, die. In Hebrews 11, Paul writes about the faith that Abraham had, saying, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. These all died in faith, having not received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So that's the first possibility, that although Abraham had lived and died a long, long time ago, he had received promises from the Lord about Jesus, and through his faith in those promises, he was able to see spiritually, prophetically, Jesus, and he rejoiced over what he saw. That's one possibility. The second possibility is that Jesus is referring to a Christophany that took place in the life of Abraham. You may remember a Christophany is an appearance by Jesus in the Old Testament. And in Genesis 14, Abraham is on his way back from rescuing his ne'er-do-good nephew, Lot. He's taken his miniature militia with him, and he's saved Lot. He's on his way back, and he bumps into, is greeted by a king named Melchizedek. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and he was, the Bible tells us, the king of Salem. Salem means peace. So this king he bumps into is the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. Paul tells us in Hebrews that Melchizedek had no earthly mother or father. He had no beginning, and he had no end. And what does Melchizedek offer to Abraham? He offers him bread and wine. He serves him communion. And Abraham worships Melchizedek, and Melchizedek receives that worship, which means he's not an angel, because angels never receive worship. They always turn it back to the Lord. And in response, just out of his overflow of gratitude to having met him, Abraham gives him a tithe, he gives him a tenth of everything he has. All of this, in my opinion, makes it pretty obvious that Melchizedek was a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus before his incarnation during the gospel. So those are two possibilities. You can decide for yourself which you think is more likely. Verse 57, then the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Some commentators point out 50 was the age of retirement at that time. And if you're thinking that sounds great, it's just because they would be dead usually within a few years of that. So what they're saying is, you haven't even retired yet, but you're talking about seeing Abraham? Verse 58, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, this is one of those times when Jesus is saying, truly, truly, verily, verily. In other words, you can take this to the bank. This is one of my favorite things Jesus ever says in the Bible. His response is so epic. It's so huge. It floors me every time I read it. You've seen Abraham? You're not even 50. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. You can catch the play on word. Jesus is playing with the concept of time in his answer. He's saying, have I seen Abraham? Well, I was I am before Abraham ever existed. So yeah, I've seen Abraham. The very name I am speaks to the omnipresence of God. Not only is he omnipresent geographically, 
not only is he everywhere at the same time through his Holy Spirit, but God is omnipresent in the realm of time. He is in all of time simultaneously at the same time. We forget sometimes when God created the universe, he created time. Time was not a thing before God created it. As a linear construct, he created time. And the Old Testament says he created the beginning from the end. He looked at the end, said, this is how it's all going to end. This is how it's going to begin. And it's laid out like a ruler. And he holds it. The whole thing, all of time in his hands. And I could go off on this, don't worry, I won't. But I'll just encourage you with this. What I love most about this is when the Lord makes a promise in his word, when he speaks about being faithful, the Lord never promises to be faithful to you and I out of a hope. He's not like us where he's like, I'm hoping we'll be able to go on vacation, assuming nothing bad happens between now and then. There are almost no promises we can make that can't be broken by circumstance beyond our control. When God says, listen, I'll never forsake you. I'll always be with you, even to the end of the age. Not one person who's entrusted to me will slip through my hand. When he says that, he says that while looking at all of time at the same time. He's looking at the end of it, and he's coming back to you and I, and he's saying, listen, when I say I've got you, I am looking right now at the moment when you are with me in eternity in heaven. I'm just reporting back to you the facts. I've got you. I've got you. That's profound. He holds all of time in his hands. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What I would have given to have had the chance to hear Jesus say that. Even though it went over their heads, it must have been awesome. Well, they don't, they're not confused anymore about what he's saying. They're not having a scientific disagreement because it says, then they took up stones to throw at him. Once again, if we're confused about what's going on, if we're confused about what Jesus is really saying, they make it real clear that Jesus has just said something that they want to kill him for saying. He's just claimed to be God. They think that's blasphemy, so they want to kill him. He's saying, I am, I am. The same I am that was in the burning bush that saw Moses. The same I am that appeared to Abraham. I am. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. We don't know exactly what that looks like, if he just disappeared from their sight, but he does it all the time in these situations. But those last two words are so heavy to me. Just the thought of Jesus passing them by after declaring himself to be the light of the world, revealing himself again to these men, only to be rejected by these men. Jesus finally, it's terrifying, passed them by. He says, okay, we're, we're done here. You're never going to believe. In John 3, it says, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. As we saw earlier, the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the declarations that he makes about himself make him incompatible with universalism. And like many of you, I find C.S. Lewis's argument about who Jesus is to be both compelling and more importantly true. Many of you know this. C.S. Lewis said, Jesus claimed to be God and that leaves only three options. The first is that he's a liar, that he made the whole thing up. And if he made the whole thing up, then he's not a good man. He's not a good teacher. He's an evil, wicked manipulator. He's a liar. 
The second option is that Jesus really did believe he was God incarnate because he was out of his mind. Crazy guy. That doesn't make him a good man or a teacher. It just makes him a nut job. The third option is that he really is who he says he is, that he's Lord, that he was speaking the truth and he really is God. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord, but there's no room for this nonsense about being a good man or a teacher. See, you could make that argument if Jesus had never claimed to be God. But the fact that he claimed to be God changes everything. It only leaves three options. He's either lying, he's either out of his mind, or he really is God. Those are the three choices. But you've got to dispense with this nonsense that he's a good man or a great teacher. There's no room for that. So think that through. Who is he to you? Are you abiding in God's word? So when you read something in his word and it doesn't match up to your life, do you plead with God to change you and, and bring your life under his word, in line with your word? Or do you just dismiss it and say, well, I'm still doing seven out of ten. That's pretty good. What position does God's word hold in your life? When you look at your life and you look at his word and something's out of whack, which one wins? Your feelings, your opinion, or, or the word of God? I had a friend this week uh, who was talking with another Christian about just his own faith. And he was just saying it was kind of sad that that person said to him, oh, so you're a Bible guy. <laughs> you know, he, he's, he's more gracious than I am. I would have said, oh, you mean a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. What do you mean a Bible guy? And I won't go on my usual rant of, of just what a travesty it is that the phrase Bible church even exists. Like, how is a Bible church a genre of a church? It's like, I thought we were all doing that. But the point stands that if you're a believer, then loving God's word is just what you're about. Just what you're about. We know that Jesus is Lord. And, and in closing, I want us to reflect on these words from John 1. Would you just bow your head and close your eyes? And I just want to read this to you. This impacted me this week. In John 1, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness did not overcome it. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of his fullness we've all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that's here right now, you would shine a light, you would illuminate the one thing that you want each of us to hear most from your word today. Shine a light on it, Lord. Bring it to our attention. And Father, help every single one of us to submit to your word. To say, hey, if something's out of whack in my life and the word of God, then my life needs to change. And Jesus, even if I don't know how to do that, 
would you help me to do that? Would you help me to trust you, to rely on you, to ask you for help? We can't live the right kind of life. And Jesus didn't ask us to do that. He asked us to rely on his son, Jesus. And Jesus said, hey, just abide in my word. Just take it in. Just think on it. Respond to it. Ask me for help and I'll help you. Father, we love you so much. We're so thankful for your kindness and for your goodness to us. Lord, would you be honored by the way that we live our lives? Thank you that you came and you lived a difficult life. You lived a lonely life. You lived a life of scorn and rejection and mockery from your childhood. You know what that's like. And your word is true when it says you are familiar with what we go through. You're familiar with our sufferings. You don't have to imagine what they're like. You've lived through them. And you sympathize with us. You pray for us. You love on us. You minister to us. Thank you for who you are and the way you love us, God. We bless you, God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.